0: Give me a go-no-go for launch.
1: Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. This is episode 118. We are coming to you recording on Sunday, March 21st, 2021, at about 1 p.m. Pacific time. I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, We are recording during March Madness, so we're going to try and get in and out of here fairly quick so we can get back to watching some basketball. But how broken are your brackets, guys?
1: Broke. My champ is gone.
2: <laughs> yeah, I had Thank Michigan State. Jean. I had Michigan State in the uh, elite eight. That was pretty bad. They, yeah. they lost
1: the
0: playing game. Yeah, dude, <laughs> dude. Well,
1: I had I- Abilene Christian winning, so I'm I'm proud of that. I pick, I had a decent first round, but like my yeah, I can't get a whole lot of points now.
0: Yeah, I picked all the wrong upsets. And I'm I'm losing. I've lost half my final four. So I think we just overthought this. Why don't we just go with the Pac-12?
2: I mean, we are a Pac-12 out. podcast. What <laughs> I what actually had the
1: Pac-12 performing pretty well. I just didn't think the Beavers were going to keep it going. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of crazy. That's kind of. Beavers are facing, uh, uh, go Loyola uh, in the Sweet 16. That'd be
0: oh, that that'd be crazy.
1: Yeah, I I can't. One of those teams making the Elite Eight. That'd be interesting.
0: I just like how both orange and black OSUs are playing each other in the, uh, in in the second round. All right. Well, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having a Malibu splash. I need to take a little light today
2: because uh, I partied hard last night. Terry knows a little bit about what I did last night. And yes. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll relay it later, but uh, I'm taking it a little light
1: today. <laughs> awesome. Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, jonas curse black spiced rum it's like a really thick rum it has like hints of vanilla i didn't have any soda to go with it so i'm just drinking it straight so i mean because why not
0: why not oh i forgot i had a button here i could have clicked there we go what are you drinking nothing says what are you drinking like bill murray and lost in translation all right so uh i am drinking i went to the brewery today and this is out of Riverbend Brewery in Bend, Oregon. Uh, it's a hazy IPA uh, brewed with peaches. I mean, and it's a real, real nice hazy. Look at that. It, it's almost like looks like orange juice almost. But anyways, it's called Life's a Peach, Then You Die. So. Uh, I, I like the title and it's pretty good, too. I mean, it's nice, nice, slight flavor with the little fruity finish to it. It's good. It's good. All right, well, uh, make sure that you uh, subscribe, rate, review. You can find us all over the place uh, at um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify. Make sure you check out YouTube and everything that's going on on that channel as well for clips of our show and uh, some full segments as well. Now let's get into uh, what we've been watching. Yeah, I got a button for that now too. Check that out. Okay. So let's start with Todd. Take us into the cager.
1: All right. So once again, I still have three animated movies to knock out in here. So here's another one. It is Teen Titans Go to the Movies from 2018. Oh, wow. And yeah. Okay. uh, The Teen Titans are led by Robin, who is getting tired of like every superhero getting their own movie and. Cause he's just a sidekick. And so he decides he wants to get his own movie. So he has to go find an arch enemy while there is like some super villain planning to like take over the world or something. And I'm not going to pretend to really fully understand what was going on in the movie. I had hardly even heard of the teen Titans before this. It's, it's like watching Emperor Zerg versus Buzz Lightyear in like full movie form. Uh, and it kind of looks like a bad nineties TV show which is, I guess, it's somewhat endearing at times because I, I don't really know who watches this stuff. There are like a few of these movies and uh, it's which is kind of crazy because it's kind of chaotic. It's um, it's got a really cool supporting cast of characters, uh, of character actors, Patton Oswald, Will Wheaton, Jimmy Kimmel, Michael Bolton, Will Will Arnett, Halsey, Kristen Bell. Is and that like course, the Michael Bolton or Office yeah,
0: Space Michael Bolton?
1: Like the Michael Bolton. OK. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's got Nicolas Cage as Superman because, of course, he was eventually going to find a way to play Superman. Uh, because I don't know, some the Teen Titans like screws something up at one point, and then the Justice League shows up, and then Cage is there as Superman, and he's just as sarcastic and heroic as you would possibly imagine him to be as Superman. And he sh- he should reprise the role. I I can't imagine like a weirder movie to watch out of context though, because I I can't really tell you. What exactly was going on? Like I felt the same way when we, when like Mega Man, Mind came out, like you know, ten years ago or whatever. But that was even an original story. This is just I'm I'm completely thrown into something weird. It, it's uh it's sort of like the Lego Movie with all the name dropping and like random characters showing up. I I don't know. It takes a little bit to adjust to exactly what what you're doing, but it, it actually turns out to be not so bad, I guess. So I'm giving it two and a half stars, which puts it between Honeymoon in Vegas and Wind Talkers. Uh, number 49 on the cager. Teen Titans wow. go to the movies.
0: You, you, that's dedication to go that far to to finish out Nicolas Cage there.
1: I know. I think I have what? I have uh, <laughs> I have about 12 or so more more cage movies, and one of them is only available in, like, the UCLA library. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like cool.
2: a, a Carmine Cop- Coppola, you know, student film, or or not? Uh... No, it's like it's like a
1: re-edit of the one dying of the light, or whatever that movie Terry had me watch. Oh yeah, it's like a re-edit of that Paul Schrader movie called like Two Eleven or something. Was,
0: oh, that's yeah. interesting.
1: Or no, it's dark, dark. Two Eleven's a different one. Either way, yeah. Some of these I don't know how I'm gonna ever watch, but I'm gonna give it a shot.
0: Nice, nice. All right, well I'll go next. Uh, For what I watched this week, so my anniversary watch, going back 30 years, 1991, uh, it was nominated for three Oscars. and Let's see if you guys can get it. The three Oscars it was nominated for are Art Direction, Costume Design, and Supporting Actor. Nothing. 1991, you said. 1991. Is
1: that Barton Fink? Barton Fink.
0: Barton Fink. I got to watch. Yeah. Uh, so yes, Barton Fink. 1991, starring John Turturro, John Goodman. Oh, and a lot of people: Judy Davis, Michael Lerner, who's the one that got the uh, the nomination. John Mahoney, Tony Shalhoub, John Polito, Steve Buscemi. Uh, it's it's a loaded cast of of Coen brothers favorites. Um, And this is really, I was looking at it, this is really the movie that put the Coens on the map in a lot of ways. Like, they had a few before this, Miller's Crossing, Blood Simple, Raising Arizona. But they had Barton Fink, and that was their first Oscar nominations that came from one of their movies. And then they had Hudsucker Proxy, and then Fargo, and then they just took off from there. So this is what really got them on the map. Um, And it stars John Turturro as Barton Fink who is a New York uh, playwright who just gets an opportunity to go to LA and become a, a Hollywood screenwriter. And he uh, ends up in this kind of crummy hotel uh, named the Earl, which I'm pretty sure was inspired by the Cecil Todd. That's that's what I'm going with. Could be, um, Yeah, it could be. And uh, his neighbor is John Goodman, this kind of mysterious uh, uh, insurance salesman. Uh, Barton Fink deals with writer's block. He goes and talks with other other writers like the drunk John Mahoney. Um, he's getting constant pressure from his studio head, played by Mark, Michael Lerner, and his producer, played by Tony Shalhoub. Um, and it's, it's kind of fascinating watching what's going on here. And then about halfway through, the movie takes a crazy turn. You don't really see coming. And uh, the rest of the movie is just total bananas and awesome. And John Taturo, I mean, this is this is the type of role that he's perfect at. I mean, he's he plays a lot of tough guys, but just being that this insecure uh, writer is is just perfect for him. John Goodman is at his best here, and he shows why he's a great uh, a great person for um, for the Coen's to to be casting uh, and and Michael Lerner, as the fast-talking studio exec, it's kind of irresistible. Uh, I, I love this movie. I'm giving it three and a half stars. It's cracking my top uh, my top 10 of 91. Oh, let me see here. Where did it end up sitting? Uh, da, 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 da. It's in the second half of 91. Uh, yeah, it's going to be eighth. Uh, my eighth best movie of 1991 now. Um, yeah, totally worth it. And uh, it was... Definitely, like I said, it's it's where the Coens took off where they had something that was that could be taken a little more seriously, yet still be quirky and have all their random fun characters and all of that. So uh so yeah, Barton Fink. Todd, I know you're a fan of this. Zach, have you seen that?
2: It's been a long time, but I like I like it. It's definitely one of their better ones.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good one for sure. For sure.
2: All right. Well, Zach, what did you watch this week? Well, it's, it's actually not something I watched just this week, but I've been watching it over the last four weeks. And that is the uh, four-part miniseries that just finished airing on HBO, Alan V. Faro, Allen versus Pharaoh, mm. directed by uh, Kirby Dick and uh, Amy Zier- Ziering. Um, and it basically chronicles um, the allegations of sexual assault against Woody Allen and... Um, the, the allegation is that he molested his adopted daughter Dylan at uh, their Connecticut home in 1992, and uh, the documentary kind of looks—it uh, looks at the case from a completely unabashedly uh, anti-Woody Allen perspective. It doesn't attempt to really um, give credibility to Woody Allen's uh, side of the case because, frankly, there is none. Um, but it also kind of looks at how the media really warped the story um, against Mia Farrow and against the the um, child in question, Dylan Farrow, and basically protected um, Woody Allen. Um, it's a, you know obviously this is this is a story that was big when it happened in 1992. Then it just kind of went away. It seems like everybody kind of forgave Woody Allen. He made you know he had a big resurrection right in the wake of this scandal with films like. Um, You know, Mighty Aphrodite, Everyone Says I Love You, uh, Manhattan Murder Mystery, a few others. Um, and when I was growing up, I, my dad is the world's biggest Woody Allen fan, uh, and I was introduced to a lot of Woody Allen movies, and there was never any mention of this scandal. And so when it kind of resurfaced in 2014 in the wake of the Me Too movement, when Dylan Farrow kind of um, made herself a little more well-known um, on social media platforms, and her brother Ronan Farrow also kind of um, you know, launched a campaign as well. Um, people started re-examining their, not just their, you know, uh, movie relationship with Woody Allen, but also, you know, in Hollywood, their working relationship with Woody Allen. Um, I think this is a riveting documentary. I think Kirby Dick uh, does terrific films. He's done, uh, he did The Hunting Ground, The Invisible War. This film is not yet rated. Um, he's a director that you know is not afraid to have a strong position about um, a controversy that has happened in society, and particularly in the entertainment realm, and in the wake of the Me Too movement. Um, you know, I can't I can't separate the artist from the art, uh, and I can't really watch a Woody Allen movie anymore. And watching this documentary makes me feel as though people who say that it's not as tragic as what Dylan Farrow has had to go through in her life. And um, Woody Allen really comes off as a total piece of garbage in this documentary. And again, I'm sure, you know, it's selectively edited, I, I know. Um, but, you know, I think there's there, there's still some ambiguity about it. You know, I, I was always familiar with the fact that he took this polygraph test, test that he allegedly was able to pass, but the documentary completely kind of dismantles that. And, you um, I, I think like uh, Leaving Neverland, the Michael Jackson documentary, it's an important work to be seen by consumers of mass media and culture. And uh, I really applaud Dylan Farrow for being brave and sharing her story. And Mia Farrow, of course, whose career ultimately was pretty much kind of ruined by this, uh, this scandal and this tragedy um, as well. So it's a fantastic uh, miniseries. I don't know. I, get, I give it four stars, I guess. But um, it's definitely worth checking out. And I applaud HBO for having the bravery to, to put it out. Now, simultaneously, I see that they still have some Woody Allen films in their catalog, which they should just get rid of. But uh, I think it's r- really, really profound and uh, meaningful work.
0: Nice. Nice.
2: It's a tragedy because, you know, we're going to do a power ranking later in this episode. And there were like a couple of Woody Allen movies that I would really think about putting on the power ranking list that we're going to do. And I, you know, I just, I can't separate it. And this movie or this documentary really just reemphasized the discomfort around him and what a sleazeball he is. So. So you I don't, don't
1: think know. you can watch his movies anymore or you don't want to?
2: I just, I don't feel comfortable doing it in part because he plays such a prominent role. And maybe if I were to watch something like Interiors where he's not an actor in it, maybe I would be, be able to separate it a little bit more. But like, you know, Annie Hall, Hannah and her sisters, those were always my two favorite Woody Allen movies. It's just, it's so hard and uncomfortable to watch them now.
1: Well, I'm sure Manhattan plays way differently. Now. Oh,
2: absolutely. And the documentary really goes into Manhattan specifically. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, that one. I, I think- I'm definitely one that can that can separate, but I think it definitely gives a different tint to the art mm-hmm. um, when you, when you know some of the the backstory of the artist. And I think I, I want to say TCM right now is doing a, a series like once a week where they're looking at some some movies that can be yeah, kind of re yeah, they looked at Gone with the Wind and some mm-hmm. other ones that um, how does history how how does time look at these. The, what's actually being shown here a little differently so um i i think it's a fascinating way to look at it i i uh, but my opinion is you don't necessarily get rid of it you have it as the conversation starter oh i
2: absolutely and, agree i don't think we should remove his movies from the catalog we should remove like song of the south from the catalog okay but like woody <laughs> allen movies i think have such a you know significance in the popular culture in fact Kirby Dick and uh, Amy Ziering talk about that. They actually interview people like um, uh, Alyssa Wilkerson, who I think is the best critic in America right now. And she talks about the significance of Woody Allen on the film industry. You can't just cancel his movies and him too. So it's a really d- difficult um, thing to do that, you know, you have to kind of make up on your own. But this mo- this documentary re- reinforced the idea that, uh, I, you know, it's really difficult to watch his movies now, and he's not someone who you should be proud to admire. <laughs> I, I, I should tell my dad that.
0: All right. All right. Very nice. Very nice. I have not watched any of that. I I should go back and uh, and check it out. It's riveting. It's uh, the easiest four hours you'll ever watch. And that's coming from Zach, who has trouble watching anything that's longer than an hour 45 right now. Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Well, that is what we've been watching. Now let's get into our featured reviews. And this segment is going to go a little differently uh, this week. Because of last week. So last week, um, we had Todd and Zach were able to make it to the theaters to watch a movie, and I didn't. So I'm going to be reporting on that. And then Zach forgot to watch a movie that we'd agreed to watch that Todd and I talked about. So Zach is going to be reporting on that before we all talk about a movie that we watched this week that was nominated for an Oscar that we didn't quite get to. And we didn't even talk about Oscar nominations on this podcast, but maybe we'll get to that a little. Uh, at another time, and I'm sure it'll come up a little bit when we get to that movie, too. So I'm going to go first with this uh, because I got my first trip back to the movie theaters this week since the pandemic hit. Uh, the last time before this was last March. I went and did a double feature of The Way Back in Emma, quite the double feature I had. But uh, I went to <laughs> I went to the theaters and uh, and saw The Father. Uh, which is what uh, Tonzak talked about last week. Uh, I I took my headphones out. I wasn't listening to anything that they said, and I still actually haven't listened to that segment. Maybe we'll rehash a little bit of it here. Um, but uh, I did post on on social media as I was going in, um, as I was walking in the theater, the, the tune that was playing in my head was, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. As I walked into the dark room, it's like, oh, this is just so nice. So, yeah, uh, I'll say I was in an empty movie theater. I was the only one in there. I think somebody else stepped in for like ten minutes and took a seat. So I'm guessing he like got out of a different movie and just snuck in for like ten minutes and realized he didn't want to watch a movie about a man experiencing dementia. So uh, he left. Um, but The Father is a brilliant film. It is absolutely stunning. Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman. Uh, Anthony Hopkins plays. Uh, plays this man who is slowly losing his memory, losing his mind, entering dementia and Olivia Coleman is his daughter who's trying to take care of him. Uh but the the creativity they use in playing this out is is outstanding. As I was watching it I'm like this is like like half away from her half memento. Uh because you see you see him him starting to lose it but then at the same time they're playing it in a way that you're seeing something brand new and they're putting you into his mind of okay wait who really is the right person who is this person here is he losing his memory or is someone just messing with him uh where actually is he i mean that all these questions pop up and that they do such an amazing job in telling that florian zeller is a director he wrote the play that this was based off of um and uh it's just such an, a brilliant way of telling the story in such a in such a unique way. Anthony Hopkins is showing that he still has it just as much as he did 30 years ago when he was in Silence of the Lambs. He is still just as intense and as brilliant of an actor uh, now as he was then. Olivia Colman is quickly becoming one of the best working actresses around right now. If you go back to the favorite, then she's been in the last couple seasons of The Crown, and now she's in this. Um, just uh, unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, and and then you have you have supporting parts from people like Rufus Sewell. Um, just a uh, just a great, great, great uh, cast and amazing performances. Um, I'm giving it four stars. Now, I know the real controversy with this is, is it a 2020 movie or is it 2021? I know Todd did a lot of research so that and that technically this is going to be considered a 2020 movie. And uh, so I'm just going to go with that. Going with that, it's my number four of 2020 now. Uh, So that that's where it's landing on my list. But uh, yeah, you guys talked about this last week. I saw you both gave it four stars. So you both loved it, too. I mean, it's it's brilliant, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, it's it's something I I never really seen a, a especially a play adaptation like that. I mean, I compared it to Mulholland Drive, in a way. <laughs> it also like the way the last scene is set up, and you see things. It's almost like the end of like Inception or something like that. I don't know. It's it's a it's a really strange uh, way to do that, but it, it it makes the movie so much just, just to the point that you actually feel. Like you are inside that character's head, too. Like you are being messed with just the same way he is. And Anthony Hopkins, it's one of the best performances I've ever seen. Like he should be winning best actor. And, but, and I also loved Olivia Williams more than Olivia Coleman, even. I thought her character is a little bit more complicated. But yeah. but yeah, we're basically completely in agreement, all three of us.
2: Yeah, you know what's interesting about this movie is that it is uh, nominated for Best Editing. And we're going to be talking about editing later in this podcast. I think it could be a dark horse contender for Best Editing because it's amazingly edited. Um, mm-hmm. Especially considering just the unreliable narr- narrator of, of the movie and the fact that, you know, you're not... It, it's it's We sort of talked about this last week, but it's only meant to give you so much as a viewer to understand. You're meant to feel confused and frustrated just like the Anthony Hopkins character... I think Olivia Colman is great in the movie, too. I think that that moment where she's she's in a car, it's toward the end of the movie, and she's kind of looking out. And maybe it's a cool off-effect type thing, but when she's looking out, it's an incredible expression. And I feel like you know exactly what she's thinking and the pain that she's going through. And I think it's one of the best examples of nonverbal acting in a scene that I've seen this year. And we talked about this last week, but Anthony Hopkins... I mean, I was expecting one thing going into this movie. I was not expecting the performance that he gave, which was full of life and vitality and like vigor. It's not exactly what you think of when you think of someone who's in old age in mental decline. I mean, he brings a lot of life and spontaneity to this performance, which is just really awesome and incredible.
0: Well, and and he does, yet at the same time, you see those looks of confusion. And I mean, we've all known... Those elderly people that are going through those moments, and he, um, it. I, I was struck by a couple things. One, how well he's able to to portray that and bring that out through those moments of vitality, and how real it is. And two, how sharp he still has to be. Uh, and into, I mean, he's got he's got to be in his eighties now, but how sharp he is at his age to be able to portray and and emote all of that in a performance like that is incredible. You mentioned the editing nomination. I was really impressed by the production design nomination mm-hmm. and it's very, very subtle, but there's so many things that if you're not paying attention, you'll you'll miss. And um, I, I just love the fact that this got six Oscar nominations, including best picture when uh, like all season, one of the things that, that that was said about the father is, are they going to campaign this? Like it, it was, it the campaign was almost non-existent. There were there were disasters with screeners getting out, and yet still it got six Oscar nominations. I mean, this could like be a best picture front runner if they had just figured out a way to market this movie and campaign it so people saw it.
1: It's the same thing that that happened with Phantom Thread, and it ended up yeah. popping up everywhere right at the end. Anyway.
0: Yeah, but Phantom Thread, I mean that that's everyone was waiting for the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. This movie I think kind of kind of came out of nowhere a little bit and I mean everyone it was at Sundance last year and coming out of that all everyone was just talking Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins and now I mean picture, actor, supporting actress, screenplay, production design, editing, I mean it's all over the place. Um but yeah, just awesome. Awesome to see this popping up and uh, it was a great first trip back to the movies for me.
2: Yeah. Same here. It's one of those movies that like, I mean, it's almost like sound sound of metal in the sense that if, if an Academy member actually takes the screener and gives it a real shot, you know, they put down their phone, they're not distracted. They really get invested and they, they open themselves up to it. It's hard to imagine people not voting for this movie. Like, Mm -hmm. But you know, I think academy that's unfortunately not always the case with academy voters. But if people really give it a shot and actually watch it and get consumed by it, like we did, it's hard to believe that anyone wouldn't wouldn't vote for this as as a at least a top three best picture winner.
0: Yeah. Of the of the best picture nominees, I've got it third. So all right. Well, I'm glad we're in agreement on that. Thrice approved. It is only in theaters right now, so if you have theaters open around you, um, and and it's not playing in all the theaters because it is such a small movie, but if you can find it, it's worth going to see as soon as you can. Go check out The Father. All right. Well, that uh, that was the new release that we talked about. And then last week, Todd and I did a Come to the Stable review of a 1971 movie celebrating its 50th anniversary, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, was nominated for screenplay then and the year before it won foreign film. Zach, you watched this, I believe, last night. Tell us about the movie, uh, your experience in watching the movie, and, and everything you thought about it.
2: All right, so I went into this movie with three distinct disadvantages. Number one is that I already heard both your and Todd's review of the movie. Number two is that I watched this movie with March Madness on. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to watch a movie while also simultaneously paying attention to Abilene Christian in Texas. Uh, but that was a feat in itself. So uh, I, I apologize to the dead filmmakers of this movie. I should have given it more attention. And number Even three,
0: a foreign film? A foreign film? You read subtitles while watching basketball?
2: Well, you read my mind, Terry. That's my my third point, which is that <laughs> When I bought this movie on Amazon, it was the dubbed version. Now I don't know. Did you guys get the subtitled version? Like, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, you know, I I,
0: I borrowed the the Criterion from the library.
1: Yeah, same here.
2: See, my library does, doesn't didn't have it for some reason. It's one of the criterions that I don't own. Um, and you know what? That that says everything you need to know about the disadvantages of uh, streaming. Okay, screw screw you, Amazon. The dubbed version was awful, and it it's a reminder that. Um, dubbed I, I haven't seen a dubbed movie in quite a while. Um, dubbing really only works when it's like Japanese anime, and even then, it's pretty pretty questionable. I will say that um, Italian movies in the sixties and seventies oftentimes were dubbed on their native track, so I don't know. Maybe if that was, it maybe that you know it wasn't a sizable disadvantage, but the dubbing in this movie was pretty bad, especially because the main character of the police chief was dubbed by someone who sounded like like they were in a John Wayne movie. They literally had like weird. American expressions like easy there cowboy or uh what in the Sam Hill you doing like really wow. and 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 then his girlfriend had a very like Sophia Loren Italian accent so that was just like way off I liked Todd's review uh last week where he compared the the main actor of this movie to what what did you say Todd it was
1: um
2: I thought he was a little more John Ham. Um, but I can I can see where, where you're coming from. Um, I didn't really like this movie that much. I thought it was it was pretty dull, pretty boring. I thought the points were pretty obvious. Uh, I agree pretty much uh, with both of you with your criticisms of it. Now the music, we do have to talk about that because uh, I texted Terry in the first five minutes of this movie. And I said, you weren't kidding about the boings. I'm turning this into a drinking game. And uh, let me tell you, that is not a good idea, especially when you're trying to watch basketball at the same time. So, um, needless to say, uh, I did tune out for for a good part of this movie. However, and and this is, uh, you know, what you said last week too, Terry, this movie has a really good opening scene. It has a really good closing scene. We don't need the hour and a half or hour 45 minutes in the middle. I think... We get the we get the murder. We get the confrontation with the other cops at the end, where he, he signs the confession. I think we get the idea. Um, I read somewhere. I read in one of my film review books that uh, it was um, what what did they call it? It was like a uh, a. Oh, I can't remember, what the, the, the term they used was so perfect, but it was like an endless sermon or something like that. Like the movie feels very proselytizing and sort of obvious in its points, and it's kind of a ripoff of Z in a lot of ways. So I gave it two stars while recognizing that I wasn't fully invested in the movie, and uh, we should just put boings, you know, throughout this podcast just to wake us up every once in a while. Boing. That's the only thing that got me through this movie is waiting for the next boing. <laughs> uh I do like the one that when he packs up to ostensibly go to jail he does take some bourbon with him. I, I like that. that was I thought a smooth move.
0: Yeah, it, it was definitely an interesting watch. I can't even imagine it being dubbed. I mean the main character talks so fast in in that movie that i I can't imagine I can't imagine someone trying to, to dub him.
1: Well, it's like the the only time I've ever seen Life is Beautiful, it was on Encore and it was dubbed.
0: Ooh. So I've, I've uh, never even
1: seen that in its original form.
0: I could see that being a distracting one to watch dubbed.
2: Yeah, I feel like, you know, there's that scene in Jackie Brown when Melanie and Lewis are watching that dubbed Rucker Hauer movie on TV. Like that's every every dubbed 60s European movie I watch, which is not a lot. I think of um, that scene from Jackie Brown. So maybe somewhere Melanie and Lewis would watch this movie dubbed.
0: All right. All right. Well, that's investigation. It's not
2: it's not a very good movie. Sorry. Yeah. The disappointment, and the other three foreign films that I had seen from that year: El Topo, The Wild Child, and something. Oh, Les Cercles Ruse, which I actually own on Blu-ray right here. Uh, one of my rare Criterion Blu-rays are much better foreign films. If you're looking for a, a great foreign film from 1970,
0: I, I think I, I think you should get the Criterion, and then watch it again. I agree.
2: I I think I'm being a little disingenuous to the
0: movie. I mean, just the fact that it has a Criterion means you. It
1: deserves then, another shot from you. Don't you
0: think it could have just been the first and the last scene and we get the point?
1: Well, the middle part is all like this, like avant-garde, like, yeah, s- like sexy, like it, it wants weird. to be a guitar film. It's, yeah, it's it, it's yeah. But I mean, I I kind of I kind of dug it. I wish there was more like procedural stuff, but
2: it, it would have been like a great Romanian movie from 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, I like it. I, I, it, it need the middle needed more for sure. All right. So that's investigation of a citizen above suspicion 50 year anniversary. If you're really interested in it, you can find it. It's it. You can rent it. Apparently, streaming dubbed. Did they have the actual version or just the dubbed version? Just
2: the dubbed version.
0: And uh, wow. I think we
2: do need to give shout out to Ennio Morricone for that score because my goodness, man, that was that was like intense. That was an experience.
0: Yes, yes, it was. Okay. Well, now let's get to uh, the uh, one of the few movies I I was texting Todd today. I think we what do we say? There were five movies that were nominated for an Oscar this year that none of us had seen. And this one doesn't even qualify because Adam had seen this one before. Um, But yeah, five movies nominated for Oscar that none of us had seen going into Oscar nominations. Um, And we decided to pick one that the three of us hadn't seen and talk about it here. So. Todd, tell us about best visual effects nominee, Love and Monsters. The day of the monster uprising was the day I lost everyone. Only a small fraction of humanity survived to move underground. I've been scanning for Amy the entire time.
1: And now I finally found her.
0: Hey, Amy, is that you? Oh, my God.
1: Okay, Love and Monsters is directed by Michael Matthews. And it follows this guy named Joel, who's played by Dylan O'Brien, who lives underground in a shelter. And he's lived there with this colony of people ever since, like monsters, took over the world. And so he's kind of like easily frightened. He has like no skills. Uh, And so, but he wants to get back to his girlfriend, who's like 85 miles away. All he ever does is been able to talk to her on the radio. So one day he just says, screw it. And he's going to go do it, even though everyone says you can't do that because you'll, you know, get killed. But he gets joined along his way by this grizzled old man, played by Michael Rooker, and a young girl, played by Ariana Greenblatt, as well as a dog who has more skills than he does and is more adaptable than he is. I don't. uh, Dylan O'Brien looks like, or he's—I mean, well, he kind of sounds like Sam Rockwell, but uh, he—he acts like Jay Baruchel. But he—and he's like ten years too old for this movie. Uh, I'm not really familiar with his work. Like. I didn't watch the Maze Runner movies. I haven't seen his Teen Wolf show, but he's just another face to me. And he's a really bland actor, but he does really sound like Sam Markle. But if it was like Alex Wolf or someone more polished, it would have made his character more interesting. But I think the movie, uh, it feels sort of like a lost movie from like the mid 2000s. The visual effects seem outdated already. And I'm not really sure how it's Oscar caliber stuff. Like the monsters look cool, but it looks totally corny in that environment. And everything just looks completely fake. Michael Rooker is really good at playing in the apocalypse. After *The Walking Dead*, they just cast him in basically the same part here. Ariana Greenblatt is like the girl in *Logan* or any other like badass little kid that they put in these kind of movies. But it's a yet another like apocalyptic romance. I'm not really sure how this became a, like a, a genre that that but they do it a lot. *Warm Bodies* or like *Zombieland* in some some ways have the same tone and the same humor, and kind of look the same. It, the giant bugs around every corner to me reminded me of like *Honey, I Shrunk the Kids* or something and yes. but it also has the same kind of like like a uh, level of intelligence with the script it's like really well-worn territory it does really nothing to differentiate it from that but I, I kind of had fun watching the movie anyway that they, they keep making these movies for a reason and uh, I think it probably would have been like a big like two weekend top of the box office kind of thing if it had the opportunity but instead it's just like a forgettable like technical Oscar nominee that I don't know if I ever would have watched otherwise but I, I still can't say that I didn't I wasn't entertained by it two and a half stars you know, it's fine. Yeah, I'm giving this one three stars. Uh
0: I I I love this. And you you mentioned Zombie Land. That's what, kind of what I was thinking when I was watching it. Uh is it's uh it was kind of a reimagining of Zombieland and where Zombieland leaned more into the just ridiculous violence and and being over the top comical. This leaned into having a huge heart. And, uh, and I, that's kind of what I took from it. Um, I hadn't really seen Dylan O'Brien in anything either, but, uh, I thought, I thought he was, he was great in, in this part. Uh, I, I enjoyed the, 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 journey he was on. Michael Rooker is awesome in that role. And I think every movie instantly gets more fun when Michael Rooker shows up. Um, and, uh, now I, it's It's impossible not to really be entertained by a movie like this. And so, yeah, three stars for me. Zach, how about you?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, um it it seems it's a zombie land ripoff. I mean that's the that's the two word review. Uh, you know this this movie wants to be really funny. You can tell, you know, in the first, they they're very proud of the first ten minutes of this movie with the writing. They think that they're so hip when, you know, Zombie Land was doing this twelve years ago. This movie, I guess, was in development. It's been in development since like 2012, which kind of reinforces Todd's idea that this is a movie that already feels dated. Um, I will say, you know, the setup was kind of interesting. I don't know. For for a while, I thought that Dylan O'Brien was the actor from 1917. And uh, what was also kind of interesting is I felt like this movie basically was the same story as 1917 for long stretches of it. Um, but then I realized that he was not the actor and this movie is not as good as 1917. Although 1917 would have maybe been improved with you know giant crabs and jellyfish ro- roaming around.
0: And this movie should have just been one shot. I get it now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: I don't know. This movie, it kind of has
2: ADHD. It's like the writer can't really commit to one idea. So like there are, you know, 15 minute segments that seem to go one, one place and the, the, the screenplay just kind of gives up on it. Um, Yeah, I like the Zombieland parts with the little girl and Michael Rooker. I mean, I love Michael Rooker too. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, but uh, in the end, I, I mean, when you introduce your, your uh, antagonist in the last act of your screenplay, probably a bad idea. And, um, you know, it just generally was pretty lame. Again, hard to watch this movie with March Madness on. And uh, I have not seen any of the other visual effects nominees improbably. Uh, this was the only one I'd seen. So my question for both of you, because I feel like the visual effects in this movie were not very exceptional. Let's take this movie out. What, what do you put
1: in instead? The Invisible Man.
0: Mm, I, I, I haven't seen Invisible Man. I have not. But seen I've it heard either. that one was good. I um, know, um, I know Mank was one that was going for a spot in there. It had very subtle visual effects in like background. I mean that there's a good chance was that, that was probably about six.
1: That Wait, you saw Tenet, Zach. No, I haven't seen Tenet yet. Oh. Oh, okay. Never mind. So it's one, one of those I'm just
2: holding it. off on. I just I am not interested. I'm not interested in hearing in in, in uh, audible dialogue for two and a half hours. Um, the, the one that i would put in is uh palm springs let's make it happen man come on that had some good visual effects in it
0: i'm surprised that like didn't didn't like wonder woman not even get like shortlisted it's a it's a strange year there's not there's
2: not like a 1917 big budget action movie that's getting a lot of traction at the oscars this year so
0: well, that's I just recently watched sort of great really now i
1: think that would have been a, a, a good inclusion but
0: yeah that would have been that could have been a good one too I'm glad to see Midnight Sky pop up in that category, though, because that had, for for all that 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 movie's shortcomings, it had really great visual effects.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking here. There's like there's like no movies that came out. that Maybe the one. Uh, how about the one with the pill and Dominique Fishback?
0: Project Power. Yeah, yeah there we go. Let's go with that. Let's go with that in there. Throw Project Power into visual. That effects. That actually had some pretty good visual. Effects. It did.
2: I mean, uh, so. Or the one with Charlize Theron, where they never grow old. That one had decent visuals Oh, the that old guy. Um, but I don't know. I mean, if you're this, this one seems so random. How is it any less yes. random than those two movies? So
0: it, it, it was a very I random. Least those two movie.
2: movies were better.
0: Yeah, I mean, it got it got this nomination, and it got three other nominations. Period. Period in the award season, it got a. Best science fiction fantasy movie nomination at the Critics Choice, Critics Choice Super Awards, ooh, and uh, best costume design in an international feature at the cafcad Awards. I don't even know what that is.
2: Yeah, those costumes were really intense. I really liked uh, Dylan O'Brien's plaid shirt. Um, what is the
0: wh- cafcads <laughs> Todd, what this
2: up. You, what would you say is the front runner for best visual effects right now?
0: Uh I got to look at the list again. I really Oven Monsters Midnight Sky Mulan One and Only Ivan and Tenet. Probably Tenet.
1: I don't know. I mean, I would probably say Mulan, but Tenet is would be the one would be more the traditional choice. I'm trying to figure this out. It looks like the Cads
0: are like Canadian Costume Designers. The Canadian Alliance for Film and Television Costume Arts and Design. CAFCAD. There you go. It got a CAFCAD nomination and a... The Canadians <laughs> really like that, And in a Canada. science fiction... And it, I it guess science fiction it
2: take place in Canada, if you think about it. They, they always it, talk about going north.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, it's, uh, it's listed as the country of origin being Canada slash USA, but I know the director is like, south african i think so i don't really know how that qualifies i don't know why it's a foreign thing,
0: man. i don't know all right well zach how many how many stars are you giving it uh two two so two from zach two and a half from todd three from me um it's about a 5.99 rental on uh any streaming platform right now if you want to check it out all right well that's love and monsters we've got five more to go what were the five there were two international features and then uh shauna sheep pinocchio and my octopus teacher were the only five that none of us had seen leading into oscar nominations and by none of us i mean todd
2: who has (laughs) seen the one and only ivan
0: i I didn't i've seen that one and only ivan
2: oh okay how was that i think adam did too it was pretty good it's pretty good that's another one that when they read it monday morning i was like what is that
0: it's pretty good. It totally deserves it, too. I mean, Talking Animals, it, it's, it, it's good. It's about Brian like Cranston a plays a Tacoma, circus right? ringleader. Yeah, it's about the the gorilla in Tacoma. Voiced by Sam Rockwell. Yeah. It, it's worth a watch. It's a, good, it's a good family movie. Talking Animals, always a good recipe
2: for success.
0: Talking Animals and Brian Cranston. I mean... What? Wasn't Doolittle, wasn't that an Oscar-eligible movie?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, they could have gone that way. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on from that. And let's get into our power rankings now. And Todd, you won power our, our power rankings game uh, last time. So tell us what our category is.
1: All right. So... I went with an all-time list kind of thing because we talk about that every once in a while and it becomes more like a Mount Rushmore kind of thing or like a weird discussion so I decided to do a power rankings on it with a slight caveat so we we're doing the all-time best film editing in movies but it can't be one of the Oscar nominated movies for best film editing so it narrows it down a little bit and so the obvious the obvious choices like you know Pulp Fiction or Raging Bull or whatever are ineligible and then Terry decided to tack on. Why don't we do one per decade? I'm like, okay, we'll make it even harder. Uh, but we all it'll it'll be an interesting conversation because it'll be a really wide range of movies, and I don't know if there'll be any overlap, but uh should be fun.
0: Yeah, it may it may kind of made it impossible because basically what I ended up having to do was like make a best of every decade list and pull the top one off and and go from there. I have no idea how we're gonna predict Adam's list, but
1: no. Batman. It's...
2: Animated Batman.
0: There we go. I'm
2: following my strategy right
0: now. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's see here. Let's start with Zach. Give us uh, number five on your best non-nominated editing movies.
2: Uh where do I start with this?
0: When when Todd <laughs> first announced this list, I was like, okay,
2: cool, editing, yeah, whatever. But then the more I was like trying to research it and really think about my list, I was like well, how do you know if something is well edited? I mean, obviously, there's like you know JFK and you know uh, if it's you know, like United ninety three rapid cuts like Born Supremacy. Okay, well that that's good editing, right? But like for the you know those movies typically have gotten nominations, so. Like, how do you know if something's well edited? Well, I mean, sometimes there's director's cuts that show that the studio intervened and actually the movie was well edited. And case in point, you know, the Snyder cut, which I don't think any of us have watched, but I think the consensus on it is that it was actually, you know, Zack Snyder editing it was probably a better idea than the studio taking aim at it. And it made it actually more coherent and watchable. Um, but, you know, also at the same time, like editing so much relates to the quality of the screenplay, the directing, the lighting, the cinematography, and of course the acting. So it's highly subjective. And of course, editing has traditionally just uh, omitted a whole bunch of foreign, film, uh, foreign films historically. So I don't know what to do with this list. It's it's a strange list, uh, but we're going to have some fun with it. So I'm going to start in the 1950s, and I'm going to go straight into um, a foreign film that is a classic foreign film, gets discussed uh, quite a bit uh, canonically in terms of uh, a movie that demonstrates incredible continuity editing. It's also a movie that um, is not a quick-paced action movie, okay? I think that's the easy route to think about good editing, traditionally, good editing. And the movie I'm thinking of is Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story from 1953. Uh, One of my all-time favorite Japanese movies. It's a classic, and it tells the story of an elderly couple who are uh, basically sort of, actually, there's a little bit of parallels with the father. They are visiting their children, and as they go from place to place, basically, they try to persuade their children to um, have them move in or be able to accommodate uh, them living with them. And uh, the movie does not have a lot of fast cuts. It doesn't have a lot of action sequences um, but it also doesn't feel like an old movie. And I think part of that is because Ozu didn't really like using devices like dissolves or wipes or things that you would have seen in 30s or 40s American movies. Also, he tended to place his camera kind of like what Jonathan Demi did in The Silence of the Lambs. Like what the actors actually kind of like look right into the camera when they're having discussions with one, one another. There's not really like over the shoulder shots. Again, this is probably more of a... Um, you know, reflection of Ozu as a director more so than the editing. But I feel like this is a movie that, is slow paced it's deliberate and yet it is riveting and never boring and it feels distinctly modern it doesn't feel like a movie it's classically edited but it doesn't feel like it's stuck in the past it feels like if you were to watch this movie today it would still feel very fresh and i think a lot of that is attributed to the editing it's timeless and it's beautiful and uh, a lot of japanese movies of course had a very distinctive style of editing and it was completely ignored by the oscars unfortunately this is one of the very best examples and um I don't know. It's it's my pick for the 1950s, which in many ways had a lot of really innovative editing starting to happen um, around the world, not so much in Hollywood.
0: All right. Have either of you seen that? Yeah, no, I have not.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's not a traditional choice, or at least not what I would think of. But, yeah, I mean, it's a great movie for sure. I I
0: I do not have the 50s represented on my list.
1: It's a slow movie, but it doesn't feel
2: slow. It feels compulsively watchable, which I think if you were to ever say that about a movie is a reflection of the editing.
0: Good call. Okay. Uh, I'll go next. My number five. So I wanted to make sure uh, as I was going through and thinking about movies that I would consider well edited, I realized I was thinking about some of the same filmmakers over and over again. And, uh, whether it's it's their, their direction leads well to, to having a, a well-edited film or if they just have great editors or they just know how to work well with their editors or they just have a distinct style that gets edited well. Uh, I don't know. But there were s- uh, some, some directors that kept popping up, so I wanted to make sure I didn't overdo any of them. Um, so I, I didn't pick multiple movies from, from the same director but this is one that has uh, it's my 2010 submission is uh, is my number five. It comes from 2018. And I would say it's kind of a shocker that this wasn't nominated for best editing because my number five is first man. Um, and uh, I think Damien Chazelle is definitely one of those, uh, one of those directors who tends to have very well edited movies. Uh, I think whiplash won editing, uh La La Land was definitely nominated. And then you have first man and, um, when you are able to take a movie uh, that where you're, I mean, to be honest, where your main character is pretty bland and boring and through, uh, and, just, and that's not a reflection of the performance. It's just Neil Armstrong was a boring guy um, and make it uh, riveting and compelling. Um, and then I always find it fascinating how space, uh, space scenes are edited and it, it's always worth watching uh, how that is done. And uh, and so yeah, it all of that wrapped up making this movie a, as as great as it was, as compelling as it was. Um, I think it's a it's a testament to Damon Chazelle, his filmmaking, and the editing that was done on First Man. And I still have no idea how this didn't get to be a bigger hit at the Oscars. Um, but yeah, it should have been. So that's my number five. You're saying that it was better than Bohemian Rhapsody's editing?
2: That's a bold. I know. Bold. Uh, I'm being sarcastic, of course. Um, First Man is actually my number one honorary mention from the 2010s. That is a great call and a meticulously edited
0: movie. Well, I, it's it's nice that we kind of agree on it.
2: Is that a shocker, though? We both love that movie. Todd's we do. do. I'm a big fan of it.
1: I oh, mean, I like the movie. I wouldn't say the editing is necessarily the standout, though. Like, for me, editing, it's like, it's like is there... Of scenes that are unnecessary is there like lulls in like how much you're interested in what's going on and i wouldn't say that first man is perfect in that way but th- those those are the kind of things that i look at in what i what i think of with editing so but, all right well but, you know oh go, I
2: oh, was no, just go ahead say- First Man covers so much territory about Neil Armstrong. I I like Terry's point. You're not dealing with the most fascinating protagonist, and you're dealing with a lot of information, some of which the audience already knows to a certain extent, others of which is not maybe the most exciting. And to to compress it into a timeline that is watchable and exciting in the way it it was is really a, a remarkable feat.
0: All right, well, Todd, what is your number five then?
1: Uh, My number five comes from the 2010s. It is uh, editing by Stephen Marioni and Douglas Christ. It is the 2014 best picture winner Birdman because (laughs) a lot of things in that movie do not really hold up on rewatch necessarily, but like it is a masterpiece of editing. Like I, I can, I cannot imagine why the Academy would not go for something like this or even like 1970 for that matter, because it's like, so convincing as being in one tape which it clearly is not but i mean it like you never feel like you are beginning you are leaving these like really sort of unlikable characters like trying to put on a play but and there's never a break in the action there it never lets you really breathe or take a or t- take any sort of break from what you're watching and, and and i i can't i can't actually picture where they actually put the cuts like it it is so flawlessly put together and it's flashy editing and i don't know how the editors don't respect that uh to nominate it so yeah, Birdman. I think it's amazing editing.
0: Yeah, that that definitely made made my 2010s list as I was going through and just finding possibilities. It it was in the it was in the short list that I picked.
2: Yeah, and it's. I think it's a reflection of most people don't understand what editing is. They just assume that it's like really rapid cuts, and obviously a film like Birdman, all the cuts are hidden, and so it's not like they're they're not there. But you have to be really skilled to be able to identify that. So. It's an interesting call. I would. I don't know if I would agree with it, but I like. I like the concept of putting it on your list.
1: I'll
0: take it. And and I think I think Todd, you might agree with me here that uh, if we hadn't uh, put our arbitrary rules on this, our 2010 submission probably would have been uncut gems. But um, yeah, obvious. Obviously. Obviously, that was Obvious. going to be my,
2: my number one, but why why do <laughs> any why do any power rankings if we always know what number one's going to be? Exactly,
0: exactly. That's why Fargo and Uncut Gems are now no longer eligible. Okay, Zach, number four.
2: Okay, uh, number four. Well, I, I originally wanted a rule where uh, I didn't want to have any three-hour movies on my list because that should just disqualify any sort of uh, credibility <laughs> toward the editing. However, I'm going to break my rule because... My number four film, which is my representative from the 1970s, uh, I think, even though it's a three-hour movie, like First Man in a way, it compresses a lot of information, and even more specifically, a lot of characters, 24 characters, in um, to be specific, over a five-day period. And that is, from 1975, Robert Altman's Nashville. And I wanted to put a Robert Altman movie on here because Robert Altman's style, I think, is very much... Um, you know, concocted through the editing. Um, it's mo- you know overlapping dialogue, right? And these—it's not so much about the shot selection. A lot of his camera work is like kind of mo- moving, kind of slow fit, zoom in, steady cam sort of stuff. But the overlapping dialogue, I think, is really uh, something that is significant in Altman's um, filmography. I think *Mash* got a nomination. I'm actually a bigger fan of *Nashville*, so we see that aesthetic in a lot of stuff today. Um, It's meant to disorient you, but it's also meant to immerse you in the story. And no one was better at it than Robert Altman and Nashville is his best film. And, uh, you know, again, it it goes from character to character. They sometimes have, you know, vague relationships with one another. They interact in surprising ways. It all leads to this kind of culminating scene at the end of the movie that is, again, shocking and still really resonant, um, you know, 45 years later. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's all through the editing. I mean, a lot of Altman's movies weren't heavily scripted. A lot of them were improvised or they kind of did like storyboards. They weren't necessarily about the dialogue. You don't think about great dialogue in Altman movies. You think about the concept. I would also put shortcuts on this list. Although, again, I'm not sure if that got a nomination or not. But um, I think it's really impressive anytime you get those big, Cast movies with a whole lot of different characters and an editor is able to find the most pertinent points in that movie. Like, you know, in Nashville, it's Lily Tomlin and Keith Carradine and Ronnie Blakely. And there's some great, you know, individual moments in that movie that stand out amid this huge canvas mosaic of characters. So I think the editing in that movie is super impressive and it's kind of staggering given that that movie was nominated for several awards that year that it didn't get an editing nomination.
1: Yeah, his movies are sort of, I guess, difficult to single out in editing in that sense. Because, I mean, Gosford Park was a Best Picture nominee as well. I had no nomination there. And that's even like sort of like a whodunit kind of thing where that would normally be more susceptible to that. I mean, this is speculative, but I would imagine
2: editing an Altman movie would have been tough. (laughs) Because maybe like Terrence Malick, I feel like he was a director that just kind of went for it even if it wasn't in the screenplay. And so you probably had a lot of footage and you just kind of went off his own impulses and to put something coherent together. And and sometimes his movies were not coherent. Um, but something as, as deep as Nashville, I think is really impressive. Have you seen Nashville, Terry?
0: I have not seen <sighs> Nashville. That'd be a
2: great deep dive sometime.
0: I have a feeling I may be assigned it soon. If I, uh, if I lose trivia today, quite
2: quite possibly. Also, very sadly, a Criterion movie that just went out of print, but very much worth seeing <laughs> for those of you fans out there.
0: There you go. There you go. All right. Well, number four on my list is going in a completely different direction from, uh, from First Man. Um, this is my 90s submission. And I think one of the things that uh, if you have a well edited movie, it's shown in how um, something simple can be made extremely intense simply by the editing. And so my 90s submission is the Blair Witch Project. Mm. Um, I, I think sneakily a very well edited movie and a very well put together movie. I mean, this is a movie put together on this tiny, tiny little budget with handheld cameras in the forest. But it is one of the scariest, most intense movie watching experiences you'll ever have, and it works because because of the editing that's able to put it all together in this uh, in this great way. And so, um, the '90s were tough to pick one from. Like you had you had Tarantino movies that weren't nominated for editing. You had letter movies not nominated for editing. Um, and but I. I couldn't not go with uh, the Blair Witch Project. I, I had to go uh, with that one. It it was the one that had to be the the submission from the 90s. So uh, um, you had this small-time movie, Make It Big, and I think the editing was, was one of the main parts of that. So, uh, yeah. What do you guys think of that?
1: It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting choice. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much there was actually was to edit out in that that movie. <laughs> they might have. It might have been all the film that they shot.
0: Well, yeah, but I I'm I'm looking at it not as much as uh as what they took out as much as it was how they how they put how they pieced it all together to to make it a uh, to make it as, as tight and and uh, and intense as it was.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm a big defender of that movie. I don't really think about the editing with that movie as much. When I think about that movie, I think just about the the handheld and the maybe the, or the overall cumulative effect through the acting and. But um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I kind of see where you're coming from. All right,
1: Todd. It's, number four. It's,
2: it's not the '90s movie I would have chosen.
1: I was wondering what was happening, Zach. You completely switched locations. Yeah, um, I it felt, felt. It felt like you were like.
2: Like uh, I don't know, changing up a little bit. Somebody.
1: I mean,
0: we, we were getting we, we were enjoying having you be able to grab a criterion for, you know, every single uh, movie you mentioned. But
2: yeah, that's not going to be able to happen. But uh, maybe, you know, it was kind of like an ode to the Blair Witch Project and like the, you know, like the camera moving around and lots of you weren't on noise.
0: You weren't on camera, dude.
2: Yeah, I know.
1: Oh, we could just hear you. <laughs> yeah, I know. We could just hear you.
0: <laughs> All right.
1: Todd, number four. Uh, my number four is the from the nineteen fifties. It is uh, Stanley Kubrick's *The Killing*, edited by Betty Steinberg, and which is I think is arguably Kubrick's best movie. Uh, it's one of his first movies, and it really set the stage basically for like Tarantino's whole career. It's kind of the first non-linear storyline to really be more mainstream, and it's one of the most like intense movies I've ever seen. And it's really, it, it actually is really short and compact. And it has all these stories that are interlocking, um, and nothing ever feels out of place, and that's a testament to the editor. It's it's about like a heist at a racetrack, and these uh, all these storylines coming together, and it, until it like gets this crescendo of finish. I I love the killing, and I think it's one of the best movies of fifties, and it, I think it's one of the five best editing jobs of all time, regardless of if it uh, it, uh, it was nominated or not. But it, I mean, it really was like a a movie that set up a lot of other filmmakers for how they make their movies.
2: Yeah. I, did Kubrick disown the killing? I can't remember. I, I, he was not a fan of his like fifties movies. Was he? I can't remember
1: if that was the one or, or was it kill,
2: killers, uh, not killers kiss or um, I, I'm yeah, I'm not sure. A killer's
1: kiss fear yeah. and desire. The killing the, those are all around that time.
2: Okay. I've not seen the killing in a really long time, but now I want to rewatch it. Uh, I I wanted to go with some Kubrick films um, on this list, but actually several of them got nominations, kind of interestingly enough. Um, Also, another director who would have been extremely difficult to edit for. I mean, when you're dealing with a pathological perfectionist, maybe he wasn't that way so much in 1956, but didn't like Eyes Wide Shut like take two years to edit or something like that? I mean... It, it, when you're talking like you could interpret this list this power making to mean like the toughest job that an editor would have had you know
1: and editing and kubrick be still had to be movie there. where there's like you know <laughs> 100 takes of every scene yeah exactly yeah
2: <laughs> same with kubrick
1: all right or malik yeah
2: zach number three okay my number three is a movie that um i just i didn't even Think about adding it to my list because I just assumed it was nominated, or maybe even the winner for best editing in 1960. Um, it was not the winner in 1960. Was the apartment, which is a good movie, but let's get real, okay? You don't think about the the, the editing in the apartment. It's like just a cool Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine movie. Uh, the movie 1960 movie I'm thinking of is far more influential, far more famous, and a movie that they actually made a documentary about the editing, and that is, of course, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I love it. Ah shoot we're on the merlot thing still yeah, yeah i didn't realize that was still a thing dang it i wanted to talk about it you, right, you well, we'll will talk, talk about, about it yeah well, well I'm, I'm sad we had that overlap okay
0: <laughs> we
2: have more. there were other 60s movies i wanted to go with too but oh well okay guess it was one with the obvious choice
0: yeah okay so uh how did that not get nominated i have no all idea right. yeah. well we'll talk about that. <laughs> all right well, uh my number three is another one that uh might be Merlot because I have no idea how it didn't get nominated. And uh that is my submission from the seventies, nineteen seventy-six is Taxi Driver. Um not Merlot. honorable mention. <laughs> honorable mention, okay. Well, there we go. Well Taxi Driver, yeah. I don't know how this didn't get nominated for for uh for editing. Um it, it's it's one of the few Scorsese movies that hasn't, but uh it, it's it's brilliant. It's a brilliant film. We've talked about it before. We've done a deep dive of Taxi Driver. Uh, and uh, I don't know what else I can really say about it. it. It's a it's a brilliant film. It's put together great. It's, it's very well edited. And uh, as many of Scorsese's movies are, I think he's one of those filmmakers that always has well put together films like that. And uh, when I saw that there was one that hadn't been nominated for best editing, I had to include it. So uh, yeah, Taxi Driver, that's my number three.
1: Yeah, we talked about this on our deep dive, but I mean that movie got snubbed like everywhere. It yeah. Scorsese was not nominated, Schrader was not nominated, editing not nominated, cinematography not nominated. It's ridiculous, and it was the best picture nominee. Yeah,
0: it, it's it's it doesn't make any sense.
2: I don't know All if right. it's the first Scorsese movie I would go with that wasn't nominated. I would actually maybe consider Mean Streets before it, but I certainly understand where you're coming from.
0: Actually, I actually haven't seen Mean Streets.
2: I think Mean Streets is a little more frantic in its editing, whereas Taxi Driver is, I think, a little bit more conventional. Hmm. But All right. It's not to say that it's a pretty gaping omission that it was so. Okay,
0: Todd, number three.
1: Uh, my number three comes from the 2000s. Uh, it's kind of obvious why it wasn't nominated. We kind of talked about it on our last podcast about how Oscars... That don't really nominate foreign films for other awards when their the eligible window is screwed up. It's four months, three weeks, and two days, uh, which I think is one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had watching a movie. I, I I've only seen it once, but I remember every minute of it. It's almost like in a way that people talk about Rec Room for a dream or something like that. You don't really want to or need to watch it again. That's the way I feel about this because it is so. It's like a fly on the wall kind of situation of this like woman in Romania trying to get an illegal abortion and it, it never feels less than authentic, and it is so deeply intense, and you, you never get a breath during this movie. It's, it, it, and I, I looked it up. It didn't even get nominated at the Romanian Oscars for Best Editing, which is just even stupider. I have no idea. It is a super claustrophobic movie, and uh, it was one of the first ones I thought of.
0: All right. Good call. Good call.
2: Great call. Great movie. Again, right. you know, the Oscars don't nominate foreign films for editing. So, I mean, it's a whole treasure trove of movies. You could make this just all, maybe it's a, 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 along with the decade kind of gimmick. We should have just done non-American movies.
1: Or just all American movies or what?
2: No, none, no American movies. And that way we wouldn't have all picked the, uh, Psycho. Oh.
0: Which definitely. apparently
2: we've all picked.
0: Apparently. Yeah.
2: All right. Zach, number two. All right, number two is where I'm going to get in some trouble. Um, all right, so uh, number two is a movie that um, has a grand total of 259 votes on IMDb. It's my it's my uh, my submission from the 2010s, and it's a movie I've never seen. So I have a feeling, and it's Todd's probably not even going to consider it a movie. So I'm just getting ready for the arguments right now, but I need to explain it, and it is called The Clock and it is made by Christian Marclay. Have either of you heard of this?
1: No.
2: Okay, so The Clock is a movie that is 24 hours long, and it is... That you haven't seen. That I haven't seen, and it is a montage of clips from different movies over the course of movie history, and every clip that's included in the movie has an example of a clock in it. Now, you asked why I changed my setting. Well, I have a clock right over here. So, like my screen right now could be a part of Christian Marclay's The Clock. This would be at the moment that is 4.13. And so every scene that you see in the clock, you see a clock somewhere in frame that shows you what time it is. So not only is it like this crazy 24 hour installation piece, but it's actually a working clock. Um, They say that it took 12,000 different clips to assemble, and it took a team of like 20 people over the course of three years to edit. They had to use an entire computer lab because it would the footage would not fit on a single computer, and it is an installation piece, so it is not available on home media. Now, I'm considering this a movie because it has an IMDb page, and it was nominated at, uh, let me see, the Boston uh society of film critics awards in 2011 for best editing and it won the best editing award there and it beat out i think something fairly impressive i can't remember but uh i consider this a movie oh it beat out hugo um i consider it a movie and i've never seen it i want to see it someday but think about that 24 hours of clocks in movies i mean that's crazy right that has to be the, the greatest editing of all time
0: now that you mentioned it, I think I have heard of this before. I, I mean,
2: you know, you have to find a movie that has 613 or 1222 or 811. How do you find that? That's, that's unbelievable. Obviously, this movie also ran into some copyright problems. So that's <laughs> an, another reason why it doesn't really have a lot of distribution channels. But um, it's an awesome idea. I'm sure it's great. All right, are you? Does that upset you, Todd? Are we? Um, um, is my list disqualified?
1: I mean, it's a movie. I mean, the fact that you haven't seen also it is also a working new. clock. <laughs> You've done that before. <laughs> That's true. All right.
0: All this right. is not a video game. That's a, yeah, if we if we get a best editing video game from Adam, I'm gonna be mad. Yeah. Okay. Um, my number two is my submission from the 2000s, which I, I realized was the hardest call to make was what movie to pick from the 2000s because there are so many great and edit, greatly edited movies that were not nominated in the 2000s. Uh, but the one I had to go with was the one that probably the editing is the most noticeable and used to the greatest effect. It's a movie Todd mentioned just a little bit ago, and that's Requiem for a Dream. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to go with some with some other things and and add it in there, but when it came down to it, if we're talking editing, nothing really beats Requiem for a Dream. Um, like I said, the editing in there, it it's like the most noticeable, but it uh, every time it, and it's really when they when they shoot up, and that's when when you notice it, and the way it uses it in that way, and then also with the with the TV with uh, with Ellen Burstyn's character, it is the editing becomes almost like a character in the movie. And it, um, it, it is a fascinating use of editing and uh, had to, had to be on this list. So um, my number two is, uh, is Requiem for a Dream.
1: Yeah. That's an honorable mention. That is, that, that's one of the, the great editings of all time. for Sure.
2: Yeah, of, of course, my number one honorable mention from the 20, from the two thousands as well.
0: All right. Todd,
1: number two. Uh, so my number two could be somewhat a controversial choice <laughs> because the editing was controversial, and it uh, it is th- editing by Allen Hyman, Gerald Greenberg, later by Tony Kay, and later again by Edward Norton, and that is American <laughs> History X, because obviously when you have that many people working on this, it's going to be a tortured process, and somehow <laughs> the movie still is like masterfully put together. And I, the first cut of the movie evidently was like 20 minutes shorter. That's what Tony K had pulled out of what was originally edited. And then the studio got Norton involved. And he made the eventual cut that we see now. That, that's more closer to two hours. And K eventually disowned the movie. But he's a madman. I have no idea why, why he doesn't like this movie. He's nuts. Like the flashback scenes like the, the black and white, the slow motion, and nothing ever seems out of place. And everything is working toward one goal. And it's just like a blistering, like, two-hour movie. And it's one of the, the most iconic movies of the last 25 years. And it's how it's put together that makes it so different. And and it, and I, I think that is, I mean, it probably is, has a lot to do with Tony K's vision, but eventually the cut that we saw, because it it doesn't, it, it, it uses the length to actually enhance the movie and not necessarily just make it some sort of, like... Um, I don't know. I I can't. I don't know what the word is, but some something that is only shorter just to make it have some sort of a lasting effect or whatever. But yeah, American History X. I I love the editing, and I know I know that that is not an easy choice to make, but yeah, that's what I'm doing. Not bad. Not
0: bad.
1: Yeah, I
2: mean, that's one that's definitely, I would put it in the, like, sort of flashy category. You recognize the acting, that's or editing. That's one of the tough things about this list is that some of the best edited movies have continuity editing, which is invisible editing. If you If you notice the editing, that's a problem. It's like a pilot flying a plane. You know, if you're noticing what the pilot's doing, that's probably a problem. But in the case of American History X, which draws a lot of attention to itself, uh, to kind of get your mindset in the characters' minds uh you know it probably it, it's it works pretty effectively not one that I would choose but I know Todd's a huge fan of that movie so I get it
0: all right Zach number one okay so
2: my number one um is uh my selection from the 2000s and uh It's you know when I think about uh, great editing experiences, I want to be visually assaulted at uh, the movies. Uh, Requiem for a Dream certainly did that, right? Um, If you know, and again, this is not if it's going to be something that's using continuity editing. Um, This is a movie that very much does not use continuity editing. It's also documentary, which I'm almost a little surprised that no one has mentioned yet. Uh, It is probably my favorite documentary of all time, and that is Dear Zachary, a letter to a, a son about his father. The director. Producer, narrator, and editor of the movie is Kurt Heughan. And uh, I don't know how this guy assembled what he assembled, but he took what had to be um, hours upon hours of home movies of his uh, uh, protagonist in this story, Andrew Bagby, who at the time he had made the movie had been murdered. And so he's looking at all this archival footage, but then he actually does interviews with people uh, throughout Andrew's life. It's also a movie that uses like some stop motion animation and motion graphics in really unique, interesting ways. This is a movie that uh, wears its heart on its sleeve. It's the total opposite of something like Tokyo Story. It is blatant. It is in your face. Uh, The editing is uh, frenetic and noticeable and passionate. Um, You know, Walter Murch has this idea about editing that there are six um, principles of editing. And, Uh, The most important thing that you can do as an editor when deciding to make uh, the cut from one shot to another is the emotion of it. And Dear Zachary is maybe the most emotional experience I've ever had watching movies, certainly a documentary. And uh, it's because of just how many shots there are and just the crazy editing that this guy does throughout the movie it is so impactful, so emotional, and um, it's all because of the editing. And, you know, you can think of some other documentaries that do it too, but uh, what what this guy had to go through to assemble the footage and put it in a way that was coherent, but also artistic and intuitive and moving is uh, just amazing. So it was kind of like always going to be my number one pick.
1: Yeah, ed- uh, editing in documentaries is, a, is almost a different category, but that was one that I was actually thinking about mentioning as well. And I mean, I know like Dreams is nominated for best editing. And I know that like O.J. Made in America at some critic places was winning best editing and stuff. I don't even know if it was eligible at the Oscars, but like it, th- th- those things are uh, sometimes even more impressive than, than what you see in, in uh, narrative movies.
0: I almost went with the documentary as my 2000 submission, but it wasn't Dear Zachary. It was Man on Wire which is another great, great use of editing. Very different use of editing. Very, right? very, very different.
2: Yeah. Also using archival footage from a long time ago in a way that is really upfront and captivating.
0: Yeah, and what I like about that one is how it how it mixes the archival footage with the interview footage and, and makes it almost suspenseful and intense and playful in, in that way. But Dear Zachary is absolutely something like that it has to be mentioned when you're talking about editing, so. All right. Well, uh, I think it's now time for the three of us to talk about Psycho um, because it's it's number one on my list. Todd hasn't mentioned it yet, so it's number one on his list, and Zach still wants to talk about it. So let's talk about Psycho. Um, uh, The the one thing that I will say is, uh, again, Zach mentioned how was it not, not nominated for editing. You have possibly the most iconically edited scene in all of film in psycho and it is not it wasn't nominated like the like the the shower scene in psycho is like the one of the most iconic uses of editing ever and and it wasn't nominated i mean it that that's just the one tiny example of what makes this film such a greatly edited movie but that that that's the main point i wanted to make with that todd how about you
1: yeah i mean uh like you said, I mean, they, they pretty much off the main character in like 30 minutes. And then after that, like it becomes something different and it, you never feel out of place and everything you are t- constantly surprised by what's coming next. A lot of it is obviously credited to Hitchcock, but in the, in the but at the same time, it's it's about the rhythm of the movie. And there's really no movie that has a rhythm of Psycho. And that's that's just how how everything plays off the previous scene. And it yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how else I'm supposed to talk about this.
0: <laughs> Zach, how about you?
2: Yeah, and the, the documentary that was made about it is called 7852, which refers to the number of cuts and the number of camera setups in the shower sequence. Uh, one of the reasons that it's so famous is because in 1960, you couldn't show a naked woman and you couldn't show blood. And uh, Hitchcock got away with both through the use of really um, strategic editing. But I would also, you know, look at the first 30 minutes in the movie before the shower sequence, which is actually really kind of slow building. Like, you know, when, Mary, when the Janet Lee character, like, steals the money, like, those shots are not meant, to, they, they certainly, they're not flashy in the way that the shower scene is flashy, but... Um, It builds up suspense, and you know this character's on the run, and then she has the first encounter with Anthony Perkins, which, you know, it's a tete-a-tete that is, again, very much like hinges on, um, you know, something underneath the surface that's really unpleasant, and it's just about, you know, the editing, right? And you have to put a Hitchcock movie on this list somewhere, so why not choose the one that's probably the most famous of his and probably the most egregious oversight in this category of all time?
1: And it was a nominee for Best Picture, somehow.
0: Just crazy. Just crazy. Well, the, the Oscars kind of notoriously overlooked Hitchcock a lot of times. Like, after they gave him a Best Picture win for Rebecca,
1: wasn't it? Uh, the, yeah, they they, they basically overlooked right him. Yeah, There's nothing the, for director here. I mean, obviously, they, they, they his, thought this was more of an achievement of him and not necessarily achievement of the movie or other people yeah, involved. His films in were
0: missing in a lot of places, though. Or the rest of his career after that.
2: Yeah. It's kind of of interesting because the sixties was like the easiest decade for me to think of movies on this list. Like I almost want to, you know, rescind psycho and put, uh, I mean, this will lead into honorable mentions, but like, Bonnie and Clyde wasn't nominated, and like yeah, it was in my, in my that's honor that's too. insane. I mean, that is also a like, historically significant editing, and maybe a similar way to Psycho because the penultimate scene in that movie is so influential in its mixture of quick cutting and action and violence. So that's astonishing that that wasn't there, along with Breathless. I mean, Breathless ushered in the New Wave. It was the first movie that did that sort of, again, overlapping dialogue, non non linear sort of um, you know non continuity stuff. So a lot of influential stuff in that decade that the Oscars failed to recognize. All
0: right. Well, let's talk honorable mentions. Zach, you're first. What else do you have on your list? Oh, well, besides that, I also, I didn't choose any movie from
2: the nineties, but I had some that I wanted to mention natural born killers, the Truman show, Boogie nights. um, And well, Hoop dreams got the nomination, so I can't put that. Um, I also thought about um, uh, let me see here. Old boy from the two thousands and The Brown Bunny. Now, The Brown Bunny <laughs> is not a great movie, but it's a movie that in, inspired Roger Ebert to go from giving it zero stars with its initial cut to three stars after uh, Vincent Gallo cut 26 minutes out. So that's got to be pretty impressive editing, right?
1: So is this his star rating, his editing of his star rating is... is that, okay. The editing
2: <laughs> single-handedly moved it from being one of the worst movies that Ebert had ever seen to being a three-star movie i like it. that's that's impressive
0: so your honorable mention is roger ebert's edit of his review no it was it, vincent gallo
2: <laughs> vincent gallo took out 26
0: minutes but but yes it was ebert's it makes, reaction
1: with it the anti-director's cut and it, it made it better it's the, sure. the critics
0: cut the critics cut <laughs> <laughs> all right well um i had a whole bunch of movies that i had written down uh, but some filmmakers that I wanted to mention that I didn't mention before that I think had very well are known for having well edited movies that I didn't have in here. Uh, someone like Tarantino. Or um, uh, who else did I was I looking at here? Uh, Link Letter I mentioned at one point. I think someone in the last decade that has been um, that has become known for well edited movies is Ryan Johnson. And uh, so that's another one that you can mention. Uh, so 2010s, just a couple movies here uh, that I thought about putting in. Uh, so I had like Looper and Knives Out, Nocturnal Animals. I thought about putting in from the 2010s. Uh, the other ones from the 2000s, I was thinking about. I mentioned Man on Wire, The Lives of Others. I think is a very well edited movie. Uh, Kill Bill. Uh, I couldn't decide which one, so I just went with all of it. And uh, and Mahal and Drive, I, I mentioned as well. Um, the 90s, I also had Truman Show. Uh, I had. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, Dazed and Confused, um, films like that. Uh, the eighties—I I didn't have any submission from the eighties, but if I did, it probably it would have been Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, I think that Tim Burton does does some fun stuff with editing t- as well, as well as Do the Right Thing. That was another one I thought about. Um, the seventies—Godfather uh, Part Two wasn't nominated for best editing. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I
1: came across that too.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> and I also had the China Syndrome. I thought that uh, that's a really fascinating movie. Uh, the sixties. I had a few other movies like uh, 2001 talking about Kubrick. I had that on there. Uh, the graduate wasn't nominated for best editing um, or uh, wait until dark. I had on the list as well that I, I, it's a really cool movie that was nominated. Um, let's see here. Not really anything interesting. The fifties, forties. Uh, I thought about treasure of Sierra Madre thirties. I thought about wizard of Oz, but, uh, that's about it Todd what'd you have
1: uh so the 2000s I had written down old boy Mulholland Drive and "Record for a Dream that you guys already mentioned uh the 90s I had written down flashy editing stuff like Run Lola Run and Fight Club from uh which is just a crazy editing and uh of course uh The Usual Suspects in the 80s I wrote down Do the Right Thing in the 70s, Taxi Driver and The Godfather Part Two. In the 60s, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Sullivan's Travels from the 40s. And also Detour, which is like a 70-minute film noir that I would put on my list, but I know you guys haven't seen it. So and I've you seen guys it. don't like when I do that? Really? Yeah. Film noir. Okay. Classic. Yeah. Well, that, that would have been... Yeah, that's in my all-time top five editing regardless. So <laughs> I would have put that on if I would have known that you'd seen it. All right. Well, it
0: is now time to try and pick Adam's list. The impossible task. Uh, so, Zach, what do you got? Okay,
2: I went number five, The Wizard of Oz. Number four, Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. Number three, Toy Story. Number two, Empire Strikes Back. And number one, Psycho.
0: All right. I went uh, number five, Justice League, the Zack Snyder cut, um, as a 2020s submission. Uh, number four, sideways. You only gave it three stars, though. Like, he didn't go crazy over it.
1: <laughs> but he moved his other movie
0: down. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: we talked about that. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: All right. Number four, sideways. Number three, Knives Out. Number two, The Professional. Number one, The Empire Strikes Back.
1: The professional. Uh, so remember- another really good
0: one, by the way. Which one? The Professional.
1: Oh, yeah. I actually have that list here, too. Uh, Number five, I have The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Number four, The Professional. Number three, Up in the Air. Number two, Back to the Future. And number one, Drive.
2: Okay. I I wanted to put the Ten Commandments on, but that actually won Best Editing.
0: (laughs) All right. So here we are. Here is his list. His honorable mentions. He has three honorable mentions. Reservoir Dogs, uh, Three Kings, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um... All right, number five from the 2010s, Ex Machina. Number four from the 2000s, Requiem for a Dream. Number three from the 80s, The Shining. Of course. Number two, yeah. Number two from the 90s, Heat. And number one from the 60s, Psycho.
1: So Zach wins.
0: Zach wins. I got nothing. I got nothing. Not Come on, even a man! Snyder cut that didn't even make the make an honorable mention.
1: Come on, man! That is Zach's twentieth win. Terry has sixteen, and I have twenty six and a half. How often has it, has
2: there ever been a power ranking where all four of us had number one the same? I guess I didn't have power psycho number one, but I could have. I mean,
1: yeah, you God. basically said like, <laughs> yeah, they made a documentary about the editing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't think we've think... ever agreed completely with the three of us.
0: No, I don't think so. There's but yeah, been... that would have been crazy if we all had psycho number one.
2: Yeah. So didn't we all? Haven't we all given deer hunter number one of seventy eight? So it'd be like the deer hunter of power rankings, right?
0: Something like that. Isn't Fargo a consensus? I think
1: we. I feel like we've yeah. talked about this before. Okay. Anyways. Uncut
2: gems. I don't know how that's not the consensus, but
1: that's Terry's fault. It's my fault.
0: It really is. <laughs> Parasite's pretty good though. <laughs> yeah. Well it's not it's not just my fault. Adam has has Parasite 1 Uncut Gems 2. I have Parasite 1 Uncut Gems 4. It might it might need to be higher. I don't know. Anyways. Trivia time. <laughs> All right. Uh Zach is hosting Trivia, which means he assigned Todd and I stuff to watch. Todd, you're first. What'd you watch?
1: I watched the 1992 Carl Franklin movie, One False Move, uh, which uh, is a movie that starts with this like violent scene in LA where three criminals are ripping off a drug dealer and they kill everyone there. And then they go across country to Arkansas to a safe house for where one of their families lives. Uh, The criminals are Cinda Williams, Billy Bob Thornton who also wrote the script and Michael Beach and uh, Bill Paxton plays this, like, small-town police chief uh, in Arkansas who gets word that they're coming uh, to Arkansas. So the L.A. cops go there and work with him to try to um, take, a, take down the criminals. But he actually has, like, a connection to one of them from the past, and so things sort of get complicated. Uh, it feels like a procedural cop TV show in the first half. Like, Franklin is a TV director, mostly by trade, and so that isn't – but it's not necessarily a bad thing. When it's done right it, it's like the cop thinks the cops think that they're chasing a serial killer is definitely a post silence of the lambs style detective movie it, it almost like appears they use some of the same sets even but uh paxton is so bad in this like it, just like he is basically in everything else like he his best and only good performance is in big love but in this he's playing this like dumb racist like bumbling idiot of a cop but he's in a leadership role and he, I don't know. It's like he's taking the crown away from David Duchovny and David Arquette of like the the actors that I can't figure out why they ever got famous. But uh, yeah, he's terrible in this. Um, having said that, the movie is pretty good around him. Um, I think the other actors are really good, especially Billy Bob and Cinder Williams. Uh, there's some Fargo in how it's like shot, especially. Uh, the small town stuff feels pretty authentic. Uh, when they're like going to Arkansas, it kind of reminded me of like From Dust Till Dawn, but like, the fat, like pre-vampires, but uh, with that, but with the cops chasing them, the dynamics in the group are pretty pretty interesting, and does have some surprises. It turns into like almost a noir in the end with like this like blaring 1940s style music and the the final shootout. It's a Todd movie for sure, but I, and I bet Zach would actually say it doesn't age well if he watches it again because like uh he kind of does that with all the movies we revisit, but like this one especially, there's like some things that similar to like three billboards or something that Zach wouldn't necessarily like. But it's Ebert's number two of 91, or 92, and uh, also Siskel's number one, so we know why he actually loves the movie originally. I'm giving it three stars. It, it's a, it's totally a good movie.
0: Totally yeah. a
1: good movie. It's totally like a good it. movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, Todd's calling me out in accurate ways. I have not seen it in a while, but I do remember really liking it, and I totally disagree with you about Bill Paxson. I mean, come on, man. You you didn't think he was good in Aliens? You didn't think he was good in Apollo 13? No, he was my uh, worst
1: performance in Apollo 13, if you remember.
2: And in Twister. (laughs) And he's, I think he, one false move, he's amazing it. Uh, well what about frailty i mean my god he's amazing in frailty or did he just direct that actually i'm now it's kind of spacing (laughs) out but exactly um (laughs) he's really good at playing people who you assume are doofuses and actually have a lot more um complexity to their character so i don't i can't think of many character many, many other actors in 1992 i would have cast in that role but um, I remember really liking the movie and I can definitely see some parallels to Fargo. But Silence of the Lambs, not so much. So I, I would actually want to go back and look at that, but, um, I'm glad you like it. I think it's a Todd movie. I think Billy Bob's really good in it. And, uh, it definitely is surprising. It goes in some unexpected directions.
1: Yep. Totally a good movie.
0: Totally good.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm glad. Uh, all right. Well, now it's my turn. And, uh, Speaking of, as we just did, of unanimous choices in a year, this film is uh, notorious for keeping us from being unanimous in a year. Uh, Actually, Zach, you've never actually sent me an updated top 10 of 2014, so technically it's still unanimous. Um, But uh, what I had to watch was from 2014, the Darden Brothers film Two Days, One Night, which... Zach has, as his number one of 2014, it was his number two of the decade, and everybody else has boyhood number one. Anyways, so I finally had to watch it. This stars Marion Cotillard as Sandra, who is uh, someone that is coming off of uh, some sort of medical leave in her job at a factory, and uh, a vote goes through at the factory amongst the workers. Um, They ask the workers, would you rather have Sandra here or get a thousand dollar bonus. And um, they all vote to have the bonus. Well, it turns out that their boss had kind of been manipulating the group a little bit uh, and intimidating them to try and make sure Sandra got fired, has something against her for some reason. And so, Uh, the uh, owner of the company agrees that Sandra can have a new vote on uh, after the weekend to see if she can keep her job. And so she has to go around through uh, two days and one night and try and convince all of her co-workers to give up $1,000 so that she can keep her job. Uh, It is a really interesting story and a really interesting premise. and, And Marion Cotillard is incredible in this. As uh, you can tell, she's fighting through some definite uh, personal demons and problems that uh, are going on in her life. That doesn't really address directly, but it definitely references over and over and over again. And the the um, different confrontations she has with the different characters are are very compelling as well. Some more than others, uh, it's a three-star movie. Uh, I, I'm, I watched, I went into this movie thinking, okay, let's see what's so special about it. And I came out of it thinking I didn't necessarily see what's special about it. I mean, it's a compelling story. That's well told. Um, Marion Cotillard gives a great performance, but other than that, I mean, it's, I, I didn't really see anything great in it. Uh, It feels like half the time she's sitting in a car whining about why she has to do this and doesn't want to do it anymore. Um, I feel like it repeated about three or four different scenes in the car with the exact same dialogue between her and her husband, um, and uh, and the ending isn't necessarily where you think it's going, which is I, I would say is a good thing. But uh, but yeah, it's three stars. It's good. It's not the masterpiece, but uh, it's a good movie. So uh, that that's my thought.
1: I so something like that i i don't think the Darden's are exactly terry's company. you know i
0: think this is the second Darden brothers movie i've seen and the other one i watched uh was the child and i kind of felt the same way it's like okay i don't really see what the big deal is i thought like terry would love lord in great. silence yes well lord of silence no offense terry it's probably the most
2: like narratively conventional of their movies but um okay whatever it's it's better than boyhood you know it it's a movie that i saw at like the right just the right moment of my life and the right experience watching it um but uh i think i what why i suggested it for you was less about the darden brothers more about that it's basically like a french version of 12 angry men which i know you're a big fan of they were definitely like you had to see some parallels there right the idea okay, that she has that. to she has to convince other people and basically articulate why they should change their mentality about something and she does it in i think really interesting and complex ways and uh did you at least like the soccer guy i mean i he was one of my greatest five minute performances he's amazing in that movie right he, he is
0: he is good he is good I, I i i was looking for him after you mentioned him in your uh in your best five-minute performances, so yeah, that was good. I will say though, one of the things that was that I was like, okay, how how the hell does this happen? Um, how does she go from uh, needing to go to the hospital and getting her stomach pumped to like ten minutes later getting out and going around and talking to people again? I mean that that was it felt like that should have been at, like at least an overnighter in the hospital, and and yet within like ten minutes she's back out on the road going to find people because the title three days two nights isn't as sexy (laughs) that's why so she's she's this frail uh insecure person but gets superhuman strength i mean i almost felt like at that moment it's like what i mean she's up against the clock what are we cranked now or something i it's it was it was bizarre (laughs) but yeah no it's good it's good Um, so yeah, three stars. Yeah. I mean,
2: I can't, I know Todd recently talked about the most emotional experience that he ever had watching a movie. I think being in a theater, seeing that movie was the most emotional experience I've ever had in a movie. But I understand that other people wouldn't have the same reaction. It's one of those movies that I I wouldn't call it a personal pleasure or a guilty pleasure, but it's like a movie that I understand if other people don't love it as much as I do, which is why it was my number two of the decade, even though I maybe had a more emotional... greater emotional response to it than my number one of the decade.
0: And I will say for this, I also was able to uh, borrow the, uh, Criterion Blu-ray from the library to watch it.
2: Yeah. They put out a lot of the recent Darden brothers movies and, uh, they, they, I, they've never made a bad movie. Check out yet, their work.
0: Yet. They, uh, they couldn't be on your, uh, your Mount Rushmore of, uh, Because that was, it was just a
2: little too predictable, right? You got to change things up a little bit every once in a while.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, it's trivia time. Zach, what are we doing? Well, I thought about just going through, Oh, name
2: the best visual effects winners from the last 20 years, but that was going to be really obvious, right? So we're not going to do that. We're going to do something more fun and a little bit more, um, shall we say, maybe controversial or unplanned or improvised. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we reviewed a movie today called Love and Monsters, and uh, we were kind of you know, in the middle about it. What we're going to do is we're going to do a few categories. And the first category is I want you to think of all the movies that you can think of that have the word love in them. Now, it cannot be lovers. It cannot be loving. I will maybe accept loves, plural. But you have to think of movies that have the word love in them. Now, this could go on forever. So I'm going to try my best to keep a clock running of, I don't know, say 15 seconds per answer, or else we're going to be here forever. So I'm going to try to keep that um, in mind. Um, and I will be checking to see if, uh, if these are actual movies. Um, but, you know, if... Hopefully uh, you won't need to be inventive enough to come up with your own titles. So uh, we're going to start with Todd. Um, Give me your first pick, Todd.
1: Love Actually.
2: That is a movie, from what I've heard. Correct.
1: Crazy Stupid Love. Correct. I Love You, Man. Oh,
0: good call.
2: Correct. I didn't even have that one written down. Good. Yeah.
0: I Am Love. Correct. I don't know why that one popped in my head, but did.
1: Love Story. Correct.
0: Uh, Love in the Time of Cholera. Wow. Okay, you you guys are picking ones I didn't even think of. Okay,
1: good (laughs) I have that one written down, too. I think you're going there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Todd, your pick.
1: Uh, It's like All the Boys Say I Love You or something. All the
2: Boys Say I Love You?
1: It's like a, a series of movies, right? I think Adam's seen them.
0: Yeah, I know what you're getting at. Uh, first of all, that, that's not the right title,
2: and the, the okay. title is To All the Boys I've Loved Before, so that oh. sort of disqualifies it. So, Terry, um, it is your pick.
0: Uh, P.S. You can I Love off the you.
2: Score here. That is a movie, correct?
0: Um, mm, Shakespeare in Love? Correct. Um... Five, four, three, two. Love is a many Splendid Thing. Did Elvis make a Love is a Many Splendid Thing movie?
2: I actually think that is the title of a movie. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I think it won like best song. Yeah, it is. It is a movie. So yes, that counts. Do you have
0: any more? I have, uh, the, I'm going to tap out with that. And All
2: right. So
0: victory on that category
2: <laughs> with a score of six to three. Terry got to run up the score a little bit. Um, we're going to move into our second category here, which is very similar to our first category, because we did watch a movie called Love and Monsters. And so now I want you to name as many movies as you can with the word monster or monsters in them. I think this, this might be a little bit more challenging, but, uh, but we shall see. The same rules apply. I'll count 15 seconds, and I'll try my best to look up titles that maybe are questionable, <laughs> like Todd's pick. Whatever that was. And um. um, we'll start this time with Terry.
0: Monster.
2: Correct.
1: Monsters Ball.
2: Correct.
0: Monsters
1: versus Aliens. Correct. Monsters and Men. Correct. A John David Washington movie?
0: Yeah, you're right. Correct. Gods and Monsters.
1: Correct. Monster in Law?
0: Correct.
2: Five, four, three, two, one. Anything, Terry? Okay. Todd, it's your opportunity to run up the score. Catch up.
1: Monsters, Inc., Monsters, University.
2: Correct. Correct.
1: A monster calls. Correct.
0: Oh, wow. Good call.
2: Five, four, three, I got nothing. two. Okay. Uh, well, Todd did impressive that round. Now the score is ten to nine with Todd leading. Um, a couple that you forgot were Party Monster, the Macaulay Culkin movie. Oh
1: yeah.
2: Um, Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, the documentary. Nice. Um, Monsters vs. Aliens. And did did anyone say Money Monster? That Terry said. I said Monsters vs. Aliens. Okay, good. I just. I wrote down your point. I just, I I didn't mark it on my computer. Um, Okay. Uh, So our last category score 10 to nine, it's anyone's game. So uh, keeping in the same sort of theme, um, we watched a movie called love and monsters. What I'd like you to do is think of all the movie titles you can with three words in them. And the second word is and so love and monsters would be one of them and blank and blank would be, however many more you can think of. Um, This could also go on until the end of time. So I will try to keep more closely associated with the clock, maybe Christian Marclay's clock, and uh, we'll see um, how this turns out. Um, So we started with Terry the last round. We'll go to Todd this round.
1: Harold and Maude.
2: Harold and Maude is correct.
0: Fanny and Alexander.
2: Correct.
1: This should be way easier. <laughs> it's one that I came, I thought of after uh, love and basketball. Correct. Oh, uh, uh,
0: this is one I thought of earlier: cowboys and aliens. Correct. <laughs> it's like no, not monsters, but close.
1: <laughs> Black and white.
2: Wait a second. Black and white.
1: Isn't that, or is it black or white?
2: It's technically black or white.
0: Oh.
1: I don't okay.
2: know. Should I give <laughs> him a mulligan for that, Terry?
0: I don't know. It's your call. I'll it's
2: give you a mulligan for that, because I, I thought it was black and white as well. So I'll give you a mulligan on
1: that. Like that one. I forget who was in that movie. Kevin Costner. Yeah, Kevin Costner. movie. Okay, that's right.
2: Uh, dazed and Confused. Correct. Pod's struggling. He's gonna need the help. I think he's overthinking. Cops
1: it. and Robertson is not a movie.
2: Cops and Robertsons. Yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll count it. Okay. <laughs> Classic
0: 90s. Wow. Wow. Um. You got anything?
2: Um Five, uh, bu- 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 four, three, two, one. Nope. Uh, I think that's Malcolm it. And Malcolm and Marie. Malcolm and Marie. Okay, I'll call it. I gave Todd sort of a mulligan there, so I'll give you one too. All right, Todd. Clyde. Correct.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we kind of talked about that one already. <laughs> uh, you got anything, Terry? Should not be as hard as... Marley and me. Correct.
1: Uh, Fast and Furious, the fourth one. Correct. Oh, gosh. <laughs> The had, had to be the fourth
0: one, though. Uh, <laughs> um,
2: five, four, three, two, yeah, I'll, one. Yeah, I'll call it. I'm done. Bowing out. Okay, Todd. Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill is correct.
1: <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> yeah.
2: Todd wins by a score of 17 to 15, but you know, not bad. A few others that I wrote down were um, Cats and Dogs, Stanley and Iris, Sweet and Lowdown, um, Sound and Fury, Roger and Me, 12 and Holding, Tom and Jerry, Amen, De- uh, Angels and Demons, and who could, of, cor- of course, forget the movie that launched the career of Jack, Spray and Wash. I you guess I accepted that. I would have <laughs> accepted it.
0: I could have said Gods and Monsters again. I just realized. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Worked for both categories. Uh, That was brutal. I I thought about saying Harry and the Hendersons, but that had a the in there. Yep. Cops and Robbersons. haven't thought about that in a while.
2: I've seen the the poster of it. Isn't it with uh, Jack Palance and uh, Chevy Chase?
1: Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at it right now. Directed by Michael Ritchie. I think we need to do this
0: as a come to the stable from the
1: '90s. <laughs> it's playing on crackle. It looks like.
0: I'm seeing if any movies on my walls work, and none of them do.
2: Benny and June, Romeo and Juliet, Jules and Jim,
1: Romeo and Juliet, Tango <laughs> yeah. and Cash. How, and many, how many? How many? Dumb and Dumb Back would have counted. <laughs> Tom and Tom is that what you said? Dumb and Dumber. Or oh, Dumb and Dumber. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If Tom and
0: Jerry, like, just came out. Good grief. Pain and gain, pain and glory. We <laughs> suck, Todd. We suck.
1: Well, I know. Well, I mean, I, I had one that would have ca- gone in a previous category, <laughs> but instead I tried to pull out that stupid title, that Netflix movie that I watched. <laughs> <laughs> to all the boys I've loved before. Is that what you said?
2: Yes. You, I've actually, you know, I've actually I... seen that too, sadly.
0: I think that honestly, I think the sequel does just have the word love in it. But the the sequel's like to all the boys, I still love you, or something like that.
1: Mm, I don't know. Maybe. Okay.
0: All right. Well, let's let's uh, that was fun. That that was
1: I love you. That would have worked too. All of those ones. Uh, York, I love you. (laughs) I
0: don't know. Would he have taken Preacher I don't know if he would have. Yeah, had I said. I probably, I said
2: that. I don't. I. I was wondering if someone was going to say amour. I don't know if I would have accepted that. Oh. No, No one ever calls that
1: love. Isn't that one like NC seventeen movie called Love? Oh yeah,
2: the Gasper Noah. Yeah, I would have accepted that.
1: <laughs> I like how the first,
0: like the second movie out of my mouth was "I Am Love," the Tilda Swinton movie. Yeah, that was weird. Have you even yeah, seen that? I have seen it. I went to Fox Tower to see that back in the day. Uh Okay, well, it's time to wrap this up. I'm going to have to watch another movie. Todd gets house trivia. Yay, yay. Okay, quote of the day time. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Todd, you get a start.
1: Uh, so I wrote a quote down from Love and Monsters, and he says, I've been sensible all my life. It's gotten me nowhere. And I feel like that describes this podcast.
0: Well played. Well played. I'll go next. I have a quote from Barton Fink. And um, I I won't give away too much, but at one point, Barton Fink is being um, interviewed by some detectives about a crime that had been committed. And they're asking him what he knows about a potential suspect. And, and he says, well, he, He said he liked Jack Oakey pictures and the detective says, you know, ordinarily we say anything you might remember could be helpful, but I'll be frank with you. Think that is not helpful. I I just thought it was a funny line. And the next line, the other detective saying like, notice he's not writing that down. (laughs) That actually
2: sounds like a Coen brothers line, but it sounds like it should be said by John Goodman.
0: It was not said by John Goodman. It was said by some like raspy voice detective. All right, Zach, what do you got?
2: All right, my quote comes from Roger Ebert's review with the Brown Bunny. Um, he actually has a couple quotes that I'd like to say. The first quote is it is said that editing is the soul of cinema. In the case of the Brown Bunny, it is its salvation. And then later, um, when he got really, when Vincent Gallo got pissed at Ebert for trashing the movie at the Cannes Film Festival, Ebert responded to Gallo's calling him out. And he said, I will one day be thin, but Vincent Gallo will always be the director of the Brown Bunny. Burn! Mic dropped. Raj, with the burn there. Ouch, don't mess with the writers. Don't mess with the graduates of Champaign-Urbana even though their team lost today.
0: There you go. There you go. All right. With that, we'll bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, Make sure, again, you subscribe, rate, review. We'll be back at you soon with some more content. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you
1: on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.